Uh, well, good morning. It is great to be gathered together uh, as a church this morning and to be opening God's word. Uh, as a reminder, uh, we're in the final weeks of our summer sermon series. We've only got one more week, uh, but we're in the series called Can He Be Trusted? And so the last eight weeks, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, chapters five to eight, and examining uh, the life and teachings and some of the miracles of Jesus. And as we've said all along, uh, and what you might assume uh, as a church, uh, we, we do. We think he can be. Um, right? we, we as Christians, we love God's word. We trust it, that it's true and accurate in everything that it teaches. And so yes, uh, as a caveat, we as Christians do believe Jesus can be trusted. But one thing that we've mentioned kind of over and over again is that in asking this question, what we're not necessarily talking about is kind of a logical yes or no, but in our hearts as his people and, and as those who are exploring Jesus, uh, what do our hearts say about this? Do we actively trust him? Not mentally, yes, okay, he was a historical figure who actually lived, uh, and what we see from the data is that he lived and taught and had miracles and he died and his people claim that he raised from the dead. Yes, okay, logically, yes. But, but I'm looking more, more innately at our hearts. And that's what we've been doing kind of all the way through this series. Do we genuinely believe every day as we walk our lives that Jesus can be trusted? And it's, it's easy, I was thinking about that this week, it's, it's easy to say, yes, we think God can be trusted in retrospect, right? Like looking back at a situation in our lives, right? Like <clears throat> we can all seem to be very pious and very holy and very religious. Like something comes through and you're like, I knew God was gonna do that. He always does, right? Like that's really easy. But when you're in the middle of it, when you're in the thick of not knowing how God's gonna provide and there's lots of uncertainty and lots of fears and pressures from within and things from without, like all around you, that, that's, that's a completely different thing, right? Like we've all experienced that when there's doubts and thoughts that kind of come up and lead us to, to question that maybe this time, maybe this time he can't be trusted. Maybe he won't actually come through and provide. Maybe he can't be. And I, I thought about that a lot, especially in regards to our church and things that we have been walking through even just in the last six months. A lot of the situation that we've walked through that we didn't really ever believe would ever happen Right, like the last six months for a lot of us have been insane for a lot of reasons, but I, I started thinking about all the things that God uh, has allowed us to walk through, things that were very trying things, things that are still very trying things, things that have stretched us and caused us a lot of sleepless nights and a lot of very frustrated nights, wondering what in the world, how can God be trusted? Is he going to provide? I mean, I, I've, I've thought about that. We, we as a church, we've walked through death. We have lost loved ones over the last couple of months. We have been separated, many of us, from family, especially by COVID internationally and those kind of things where there's a lack there and there's a loss in our lives. There's job loss. There's financial insecurity. We've also seen injustices that have been brought to light on a national and international level that have caused a lot of just unsureness of what comes next in a lot of things. And then there's the, just the mental angst of COVID and lockdowns that has just had on all of us, right? And, and even upcoming where schools are gonna be opening up. There's even a lot of fear and unknown. And right, like this is just kind of the air that we've been breathing over the last six months. There's been a lot of sadness and loss, but there's also been uh, a, a lot of life. There's uh, new babies that have been born even this week. Uh, there's babies that have been conceived. We're waiting, waiting to see if, when this baby's coming sometime in November. 
but also there's been spiritual new life, right? Like people have become Christians in the last six months. And others of you have grown in your relationship with God greatly over the last six months. And so there's, there's been a lot of life, even in the midst of there being a lot of death around us. There's been a lot of happiness as well as a lot of sadness. There's, there's been a lot of reasons we can look and say, yes, I know we can trust him, but also a lot of things that if we're honest late at night, we're falling asleep and we're like, I don't know. I don't know. God, I need you to come through. And that might be even why some of you are here exploring Jesus. Maybe you don't know if he can be trusted and you're curious about that and we're, we're happy you're here. And maybe some of you are newer Christians and you're walking through various things in your life wondering, can he be trusted in this? And some of us as older Christians are here encouraging you. Yes, he can be. All right. And we're looking at his words and yes, he can be. But, but then there's also those of us who have been Christians for a long time where we're also walking through seasons like this, wondering if he can be trusted. Because there have been plenty of times in our life that have been and that will come where we're unsure of a lot of things. It's easy to trust God when things are going well, right? That's, it's easy to trust God that everything is going well and you have no big problems in life, but, but, but when life pushes back on you a bit, when there's the unknown, that, that's a bit harder, right? To actively walk out our faith and to trust even when we can't see the way before us. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to do this series, why we wanted to look at our hearts, because whether it's in this past season or whether it's in the season that's yet to come, because there'll be other seasons uh, in the next six months, year, two years, three years that we will walk through, that will make us question, does he care and can he actually be trusted? And so if you've had a, a recent few weeks that have kind of been filled with anxiety and depression or frustration... Or if you've had a week where you're like, no, man, I feel like this has been a really, like no major ups and downs in this past week. I feel like this has been a pretty solid, good week. Or, or maybe you're somewhere in between. Uh, I'm glad that you're here with us as we are walking through God's word uh, and here to encourage one another as we, we sing and we pray and we dive into God's word. So let's pray and then we will move into today's text uh, together. So let's pray and then we'll do that. So Father, I pray that you would uh, meet with us this morning. Uh, I pray that you would, as we're gathering together, use this time in our lives. As we gather by your spirit, under your word, uh, I pray for even this time of preaching, that as I'm bringing what little I have, that you might use it to nourish our souls and to satisfy us in you. Uh, I pray that you would grow our affections for Jesus, that, that we would see who he is and how he loves, how he provides and may we see that you, God, can be trusted as we walk throughout our daily lives. This morning, as we come to your word, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things from your word, and that you would give us hearts that feel and minds that comprehend, and that you would work a, a miracle in our hearts, that you would deepen our trust in you, in who you are, and in your great compassion. And we pray this in Jesus' great name, Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Well, as we're getting started this morning, it's important that we be reminded of where we're at in the Gospel of Mark. If you remember from Nino's exposition of the Bible last week, where he opened up God's Word and reminded us that Jesus's primary mission that was planned and given by God the Father was a ministry to the Jewish people. He has come to have great compassion on the Jewish people, God's covenant people, the descendants of Abraham, reminding us that God is faithful to all of his promises. None of them will ever be dropped or forgotten. That's what we kind of began the series being reminded of, and this is what we see over and over again. 
It's why we, if you remember in Mark chapter six, if you were with us, or you can look back in your Bible real quick and look at Mark chapter six. Oh, we covered a few weeks ago. Jesus sees a large Jewish crowd. And what does he have for them as he sees them? Compassion, right? There was that really long word, spling nizumai, where it's like this, he, he had this, this desire to help serve them. He had compassion on them. He saw them as like sheep without a shepherd. And he, as the great shepherd of Israel, comes and he gives them the very words of God. He feeds them God's words. His teaching is kind of like honey to their lips and they love it. They're, they're hearing Jesus open up God's word and they're seeing the authority that he has and they love it and they're benefiting from it. And then, and then he actually gives them physical food. And, and we talked about how that reminded us of how God provided for Israel as they're leaving Egypt headed to the promised land and God provides for them in the wilderness, food, bread, and meat out of nowhere. God just provides for them. And how in a similar way, Jesus, as he provides 15,000 people with bread and fish, we're, we're reminded of what his ministry is all about. He has come as the greater prophet, the greater king over God's people. He, as God himself has come to rescue and redeem his people, the ones that he has been making promises to ever since Genesis chapter three, and then Genesis six, and then Genesis 12, and going all the way through all of the Old Testament, he's been promising, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming, and now he's come. And so when Jesus comes to set up the kingdom of God, this is, this is what he's all about, this is what he's doing. And we saw great compassion of, of coming to save his people, his covenant people. That's his primary mission given to him by God the Father. And, and last week we saw a Gentile woman. Now, are Gentiles part of the Jewish people? No, but she comes to Jesus and she says very humbly, Jesus, will you come and heal my daughter from this demon? Would you? Would you, would you heal my daughter? And Jesus' response to her was that his purview, his directive is not towards the Gentiles, but but to the Jewish people. He was the Messiah of the Jews and it was to them that the miracles were primarily given that they might see that God had not forgotten his people. And, and you know, reminded, of that, of, of us, reminded us of that last week. But interesting enough, as he mentioned last week, but also throughout the journey of the gospel of Mark, we've seen a few times where the Gentiles have also benefited from the overflow of Jesus's ministry. Even if it were kind of from the overflow. For example, remember in Mark chapter five, we saw the demon-possessed man, right? The guy that nobody could bind. And he was like crazy. He had a legion of demons inside of him. Remember that guy ran around naked, cutting himself with rocks. And everyone just was like, I'm not getting near that guy. I wouldn't either. Naked guy running around, cutting himself with rocks. I'm like, no, nope, I'm, I'm out, right? Uh, in the same way, uh, this guy came to Jesus and Jesus had great mercy on him. He, as a Gentile man, plagued with many demons, Jesus healed him and then sent the man back into his city, into the Decapolis, 10 cities of the Gentile region to do what? To preach to them about Jesus, that Jesus had healed them. And then last week, that little Gentile girl, she, of course, is healed of the demon. Jesus heals her. So even though these, these people are not Jewish, uh, Jesus showed great compassion and great kindness towards them, demonstrating that he also has a heart for them as well, and affirming that he's the Messiah, uh, living up to the words that are uttered about him when he was a little baby. If you want to flip with me in your Bible, you can real quick to Luke chapter two. In Luke chapter two, uh, we see this. There is a, a man named Simeon who, who we see is a righteous man. He is a <clears throat> righteous man, and he is there in the temple with 
Jesus, uh, we see in verses 28 to 32, all that he says about him. And, uh, and what we see in Luke chapter 2, verse 32, is that Jesus has come to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. Now, now, this is actually a combination. What Simeon is doing, he's remembering the promises of God in Isaiah 42, 49, 52, and 60 of the, that God is, is sending the Messiah who will come to the nations. And Simeon is saying, this is what the ministry of Jesus will be all about, that he will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for your glory to your people Israel. And that is what we will see in today's text, that he has come in Mark chapter eight to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. He has great compassion on the Jewish people, yes, of course, but also as a light for the Gentiles in a very unexpected way. In fact, in today's text, it'll show us how unexpected this was for them. So let's pick up. We're going to look in Mark chapter 8. Uh, we're going to look in verses uh, 1 to 10, uh, primarily, firstly, and we're going to see Jesus's compassion for the Gentiles, the outsiders. So Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 10, this is what we'll see, Jesus's compassion for the Gentiles, the outsiders. And this is what God's word says. It says, in those days, when again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him. Now, now note that, who takes the initiative here? The disciples? No, Jesus does. He takes the initiative and calls them to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. Now stop there again, if you're a circler, underliner or note taker, this is the only time that we see in the gospel of Mark that Jesus himself says he has compassion on anyone. Isn't that fascinating? He doesn't say he has compassion on the Jews. We, we see in Mark chapter six, it's said of him that he has compassion on the Jews. But this, he now says, I have compassion on the Gentiles, which is noteworthy. Uh, and, and specifically, we see that fleshed out in two ways. One, we see him say, because they have been with me now three days and they have nothing to eat three days and nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. So we see the reasons why he wants to be so compassionate to him. And it is very compassionate for him to do this. So unlike Mark chapter six, if you remember in Mark six, all, everyone had run to go see him. Remember they go across the other side in a boat and everyone like runs and they pick up more people as they go. It's like Forrest Gump. They just pick up more people and we get to the other side and Jesus is there trying to get away with his boys. And, and all of a sudden there's this huge crowd and he has compassion on them. And later that day he teaches them and then feeds them. But here, this crowd has been with Jesus for how long? Three days. They have been with Jesus three days in the wilderness. And what are they doing for so long? Again, we don't really know. We can't be entirely sure. It doesn't tell us. But in the context of Mark, we can assume that what Jesus is doing here is at least He's preaching to them for three days. I don't know if you've ever been to a three-day sermon. That's a long sermon. Can you imagine? Just three days. Just here we are. We're still going, right? Jesus is still teaching. He's been giving them his words, sustaining them with true nourishment, God's very word. What we need to sustain us as his creation is his word, and this is what he gives to them. And we know that as well. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been doing this all over the place. He's been teaching from town to town all the promises of God the promises that the kingdom of God has now come, that forgiveness of sins before the Father is now available and ready to be given to the needy soul. If only they will come. 
and receive it. If they will believe in the promises of God and repent and turn away from their sins and trust in Jesus. And, And we don't know how these people survived for three days. Isn't that fascinating? They don't tell us how they survived for three days out here. It wasn't until the end of the third day that Jesus gives them something to eat. So we know that there were uh, food containers. We saw, we, we see in the end of this story that there are large food containers, uh, big enough. It's, it's the word there, the food container is the word uh, when Paul later on is being hunted and they're trying to kill him and they lower him down in a basket over the wall. This is that word that's used. It's a massive basket. So we know there were seven, at least seven of these massive baskets. So Maybe somebody was like, I'll bring all the food for the 4,000 people that are here. I don't know. But I don't know how far seven baskets of food goes. Uh, So maybe that way, or maybe people kind of had food in their pockets, right? Like have some sardines, some dried out sardines and some bread for a couple of days. I don't know. Or or maybe they were fasting for three days. We don't know. We're We're not really told. But either way, as the teaching time is wrapping up and Jesus is about to dismiss them to head home, Jesus is like, listen, these guys aren't gonna make it home. They're gonna faint on the way there. Like it's, it's hot, it's, it's been a long three days, they're tired, they won't make it there. And it says that he has great compassion on them. And it's the same word when, it, when Mark earlier said Jesus had compassion for the Jews, it's the same word that Jesus says he now has for the Gentiles. It's this really weird word, uh, splangnizomai. It's a word that means Jesus had this gut-wrenching emotion on behalf of the crowd. He was moved with compassion that led him into action. And the disciples, knowing how Jesus had provided for the Jewish people a couple of weeks earlier, I mean, without a doubt, they remember that, right? Like, would you forget if Jesus had just provided food out of the middle of nowhere for you? No, you would remember that. Like, that would be the, like, you'd probably be constantly talking about it. Do you remember that time? That was nuts. So without a doubt, they remember that. But, but here's what we're going to see in, in a moment. What we're going to see is that Jesus is about to have the same level of compassion on the Gentiles and to provide for the Gentiles in a similar way that he had provided for the Jews. And, and these disciples of Jesus don't really know what to do with that. Now, now, him being compassionate towards the Jews, that makes sense. Miracles and signs for the Jews, total sense, right? They are God's covenant people. He is God's covenant king. Come to liberate them from sin, Satan, and death. They, they understand that his compassion towards the Gentiles. If you remember at this time, the Gentiles are unclean. They would not eat with Gentiles. Gentiles are dirty people. That's us. We're all, they, would all, they would all think that we're dirty people. They wouldn't want to eat with any of us, right? And, and, and because of that, they wouldn't even soil themselves by eating with you. They didn't want to touch us. And so, so they, they think these men are very unclean. And, and yet what Jesus is about to show is that he has compassion even for those that everyone thinks is unclean. This is phenomenal compassion. So what, what we're going to see is the disciples, they are going to be unsure if the extraordinary provision of God he had seen with the Jews is also going to be extended for the Gentiles. I mean, could God's mercy extend to them as well? Does he also have compassion for these guys? And this is a desolate place with little food, and there's 4,000 people. So in a moment, don't, when we read this, don't think, oh, these guys are just daft. They just don't get it. Are, are you blind? Of course, Jesus can do the same thing again. That's not, their, that's not their problem. Their problem is not can he, but should he, or even would he do this again? Hadn't he just said that he came for the Jew, not the Gentile? Hadn't he just said he had come to do miracles for the Jews, not the Gentiles? And yet, what do we see him doing? Miracles for the Gentiles. Th- this goes completely against what he had just said he was doing. This... Th- it doesn't make any sense to them. 
they, they are dumbfounded at what is about to happen and they will be utterly blown away. So they, they come up to him and Jesus says, all right, we, we got to feed these people. And they're like, all right, man, like we're in a desolate place. All right, look at this next line. He, the disciples answered him. They said, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people and they set them before the crowd. And, and something beautiful is happening here in this moment. Did you catch it? These Jewish men who think that Gentiles are dirty people who would not touch them and thought them unclean, what are they doing? They're serving them food. Jesus just made them the servants of the dirty, unclean people. Like this, this would have been wild. Jewish men serving Gentiles? No, 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 Jesus. They have, this can't be you setting up your kingdom on the earth. Gentiles are supposed to be served, or Jews are supposed to be served by the Gentiles. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. That's not how my kingdom works. Guys, this is, this is wild. They're not even supposed to have table fellowship together, and they are now serving them. And the text continues. And they had a few small fish. And, and having blessed them, he said that these should also be set before them, and they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Those are those baskets we talked about, those massive baskets. <clears throat> and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them Away. So just as we saw last week in the healing of the Gentile woman's daughter, so we see again the great compassion of Jesus is extended not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And from the church fathers and the very earliest Christian sermons and letters that we have about this scripture right here, we see that Christians have always understood that what is happening here is Jesus is demonstrating that he has come not just to bring saving bread to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. He has come to save both. Jew and Gentile. This feeding expresses that although Jesus has come for the Jew first, he's not come for the Jew only, right? Jew first, but not Jew only, but rather the plan of God the Father from before the foundations of the world was to elect and secure the salvation of men and women and boys and girls from every nation, tribe, and tongue, all the ethne of the world, all for his glory and praise and for our great benefit. And so what we see is his compassion extends not to just some people somewhere, but to the ends of the earth for every person that the Father has given to the Son. Jesus has not just come for the Jewish nation, but as we even saw in the promise given to Abraham, for them and for the nations. And the teaching and the miracle of the new birth is available for anyone who hears Jesus' voice and will come and will repent of sin and trust in Jesus and Christian brother and sister, this is good news for us because we are all Gentiles. Every single one of us in this room. If we had a Jew here, we'd say, well, you also need God's grace too. But, but we don't have any Jews here. So we're all Gentiles. We, we're all those dirty, unclean people. We're all those who don't, don't and should not have the kindness of God extended to us. And yet what we see is God's greatness and compassion and mercy extends to people like us as well. That although Jesus came for the Jew first, he also came for us which lets us know something is that there's not two classes of Christians. This would also is, is really important in the early church. 
This letter, for example, was written to the Italian Christians living in Rome. And the Italian Christians living in Rome had both Jews and Gentiles. So imagine if you're in a church, Jews and Gentiles, and they're like, Jesus only came for the Jews. You guys are just kind of here by accident. You're just kind of like a second-class Christian. We have all the promises. You, well, you're just kind of here. Good for you, but you don't have what we have. And Jesus here is saying, no, 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 no. In the same way that, that I've come for the Jews, I've also come for the Gentiles. And when we become Christians, we are now adopted into one family. The Gentile is grafted into the promises of God so that all of us, whether Jew or Gentile, we all are saved by grace and through faith, not by who our dad is or what our lineage is right? We're all saved by grace through faith, and we're grafted into the very promises of God. And we have now through Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There are not two classes of Christians. And even today, we we need to be reminded of that because there are not two classes of Christians, those who have been filled with the Spirit and those Christians who have not been filled with the Spirit. If you are a Christian, you have been filled by the Spirit, You belong to Christ. The Spirit is your earnest, guaranteeing that you belong to Him. And so there's not two groups of Christians even today. Those that have certain gifts that that make them the super awesome duper Christian that's super filled with Jesus and those that are just kind of, you're just kind of barely here. No, we we are all brought into this family. We, We are all shown grace and kindness and adopted into this family and shown compassion. And so Jesus, He dismisses this crowd and they satisfied, go home. I love that they are satisfied. That means they're full. You ever been so full that you, you have to like sit down and like unbutton your pants a little bit and you're just like, I just need a moment just to, just to I'm, I'm full. This, this is uh, this idea. They are fully satisfied. There's not a drop of hunger left in their whole body. He satisfies them completely. And Jesus continues on his way. And once again, he comes under harassment. So we'll move into our next section. We'll start in verse 10, but then jump into 11. Immediately, uh, Jesus is gonna see the, the Pharisees. And, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and he went into the district of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And here's where we move kind of to the second scene of our passage. The first one was Jesus has compassion to the outsiders. What we're going to see here is Jesus has a rebuke for the insider, a rebuke for the insider. One thing I want to mention is that Jesus' rebuke here, however, is part of how he demonstrates his love for them. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Jesus could, when the Pharisees approach him, just say, nah, man, and just walk away. And yet he doesn't. In this moment, what we're about to see is that he rebukes them, right? We, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Love doesn't mean you just simply put your arm around somebody, look in the mirror with them and just say, aren't you the greatest? You're the best. Uh, love is that. There's, a, there's an aspect where we, we enjoy those that we love, but, but also in love for one another, we, we have to call things out in one another very humbly, very gently, very respectfully. But there are certain behaviors that if left to our own, because our hearts are deceitful above all things, that would lead us on our own into terrible things. And so people that love us are those that come around us and say, hey, I don't think that's good for you. I, I, I think you need to be wise in this. Or if they see a sinful thing in our lives, they, they say, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. I, I've learned that probably the most as a dad. Right? There's a lot of behaviors I see my kids doing that I'm like, no, 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 don't do that. That will not lead well for you. Right? And, and in the church, this is what we are always supposed to be doing with one another. Cautioning, helping, loving, supporting, serving, talking, helping one another follow Christ better. And so when Jesus here, he rebukes them, what, what we see is that he is 
loving them even in this rebuke. There are harmful behaviors that they're gonna exhibit here in a moment that need rebuking. And it'll only be God the Spirit's power and assistance that will help these men. And, and what's beautiful in this too, think about two notable Pharisees that you know that became Christians. Nicodemus and Paul, right? So Jesus isn't just writing off all the Pharisees like all of you are dumb. No, he, he's rebuking them, calling them in, seeing if they will have ears to hear and minds to comprehend. So I wanted to frame that before we get to the discussion because what we're gonna see is in a moment, they, they're gonna come up and they're looking for a fight. Uh, if you see, uh, if you remember, uh, the, the Pharisees along with the Herodians are trying to kill Jesus. We saw that in Mark chapter three, verse six. They're beginning to plan that already from the very beginning of the book of Mark. And we even get a hint in that in, in how Mark uses uh, this word uh, when he says that uh, they uh, came, they came, the Pharisees came. That word there is the word, is like they came out, sort of in the way that a military maneuver of coming out to war. And that's precisely what the Pharisees are doing. They come out against Jesus as if he's an enemy combatant to rebuke him and to argue with him to dispute with him and to test him, which doesn't mean an objective test. They're not trying to just discover the merit of something, but they're wanting to be an obstacle or a stumbling block to discredit him. They're trying to discredit Jesus. And it occurs only four times in the gospel of Mark, this word uh, to argue with. The first one, do you know who we see it in in the gospel of Mark? Satan comes to argue with Jesus. The other three times, the Pharisees. So what Mark is saying is that the Pharisees, whose side are they on? Satan's, right? Like, that's not good. Uh, he's like, you're on Satan's side when you're coming out to, to argue and to disprove. So what we're, we're seeing here is actually the very attacks even of Satan against Jesus and his kingdom. There's a confrontation and a challenge coming here. So they come against him, opposing him in order to test him. They want him to, to prove himself as false and they demand a sign from him, which is the same thing that Paul will later say that, that the Jews, they demand what? Miraculous signs. This is the exact same idea. But the sign requested by the Pharisees isn't just a miracle, right? They're not saying, Jesus, we just need more miracles from you. In fact, in the gospel of Mark, the word miracle and the word sign are different words. So they don't need more miracles. What they want is a sign from God, an outward compelling proof of God's authority in this life of Jesus and what he's doing. They're saying the miracles that you've done, and they've seen a lot of them, aren't enough. We want a sign from God. Now, what's interesting, they don't tell you what the sign would be. They don't say, if only you could do this, then we would know. They don't even tell them what the sign would be. It's just a sign. I don't, I don't know what that means. Right? Like something. And they refuse to look at all the miracles that Jesus had done as proof. They want more. And what this shows us is that nothing would satisfy them. Right, even when Jesus dies on the cross and raises from the dead, they're like, no, 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 it's not good enough. It's not good enough. He's like, are you kidding me? Right, and, and, and as R.C. Sproul, he wrote about this desire for a sign. And he said, he said how, many, how many signs did the Pharisees need to see? Jesus had already gone through the region of Galilee with a blaze of miracles. Everywhere he went, he healed the sick which we've seen over and over again. And those with all kinds of maladies and disabilities and those who are possessed by demons. The Pharisees, however, were convinced that Jesus had performed all of these works, not by the power of God, but by the power of Satan. We see that in Mark chapter three, verse 22. So they didn't see them as divine authentications of a trustworthy prophet. They wanted a conclusive sign, one that would once and for all settle the matter. In basic terms, it was this. Jesus, prove yourself that you're really from God and then we'll follow you. <laughs> but 
but we'll see they keep doing that until the very moments right before he dies. We'll see that in Mark chapter 15, verse 32. But we quickly see, therefore, that it's not another miracle that they want. Again, their goal is not to believe upon Jesus, but to discredit him. That's what they want. They come for a fight, and they want to discredit him. And how does Jesus respond to them? Well, firstly, we see that he sighed in his spirit. He sighed deeply in his spirit. We've all been in situations where someone has said something, and the response for the other person was, <sighs> right, we all know what that means. That's not good. That's like a universal sign of like, what you just said was not good, right? Sometimes your kids say something to you, and you just go, <sighs> right? Like, your friend, your boss, that's even worse when it's your boss, or when it, even worse when it's your employee, and you're like, oh, no, you just didn't, right? Like, uh, right? in the same way, he just he sighs. We all know what it indicates. It's universal, but this sigh was a deep one, and it's more than just a sigh, even more than just a heavy sigh. What it tells us is that Jesus, right here in this moment, he's at his absolute limit. He's at his absolute limit, humanly speaking, of exasperation. He is done with these guys. He's sick and tired of this response constantly. Right? Every time we've seen the Pharisees come up, it has not gone well. They just keep yelling at him, and he's just like, are you ever going to believe this? Right? There's just constant disbelieving. And if anybody should have believed in the promises of God and seen the miracles of Jesus and been studying God's word and believed upon Jesus, it should have been them. They were the guys that knew this word backwards and forwards. And yet they kept just trying to discredit and disprove Jesus over and over again. And he's exasperated. And what's interesting about this is, if we think about it, this is exactly how God has historically acted towards his people as they continue in false worship and in false idolatry throughout the Old Testament. Right? Think about it. God, God proves himself in the Old Testament over and over again. Think about Exodus, for example. How many miracles and signs did God do to liberate his people out of Egypt? Lots, right? Like crazy things, miraculous things, and then led his people, having plundered the Egyptians out into and, and on, on their way. And as they're going, they don't trust him. They don't trust him. In Exodus 33, verse five, God even calls them a stiff-necked and stubborn people. It's that exasperation of God towards the people that should have seen his miracles and trusted him, and yet don't, that Jesus is showing here. And it's the idea that we have. Jesus sighs deeply. And then secondly, it says, why does this generation seek a sign? Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. It's interesting that that reference of generation reminds us of Genesis chapter 7. Do you remember Genesis 7? God shows Noah great mercy. In fact, Noah finds grace in the eyes of God. God looks it on him with grace and saves Noah and his family. What happens to the rest of humanity? Wiped out under God's judgment. So, so this, this reference of this generation reminds of that, where a disbelieving generation was swept away in the judgment of God because of their hardness of hearts. And Jesus, in effect, says, do you want a sign? Read the scriptures. Listen to my words. See what I do. Beyond that, I'm not giving you any signs. I, I'm, I'm done. I'm not giving you anything else. If you cannot see God at work in me, no evidence will convince you otherwise. And this demand is really just an expression of unbelief. And Jesus is saying, I will not play your wicked game. I'm not going to play it. Because it's not a lack of signs. Rather, it's a wicked heart that stands in opposition to Jesus. It's the heart of Satan. Wanting to just discredit and disbelieve Jesus proudly denouncing and demanding more proofs, claiming to be wise, these men became fools. 
claiming to be righteous, they proved themselves unrighteous. And we see that Jesus left them. He got into a boat and he went to the other side. Jesus leaves them behind. This is perhaps one of the saddest moments in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has come to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. But see what we've seen so far. The Gentiles are the ones who receive three days of teaching and they are fed with bread out of the hands of Jesus and they are satisfied. And yet the leaders of the Jews who should have heard and believed, they come negating, fighting against, trying to discredit Jesus and they left and they are not satisfied. And they're trying to teach others to do the same. Which brings us to the next conversation with Jesus and his disciples. They're on the boat, right? They've just gotten on the boat and they're on the boat. And it kind of brings the, the story full circle because we're talking about bread again. Started with bread, we're gonna end with bread. And to examine their own hearts and, and the situation that's going on, Jesus, Jesus has a conversation with them. And the whole goal of this is to encourage them. It's the encouragement of the disciples. Now we, we pick up in verse 14, It says, now they had forgotten to bring bread. So the disciples are on the boat and they forgot to bring bread. Either some of the leftovers, remember they had seven of those huge baskets of leftovers. They didn't bring any of those. And maybe Jesus has said, hey, leave those for them. We'll get some bread somewhere else on the way out. But then what happens right before they jump on the boat? They get accosted by the Pharisees. And so out of haste, out of whatever, they just, they get onto the boat and the disciples are there and they had forgotten to bring bread. I'll keep going, verse 14. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now we'll pause right there for a moment. It's not quite clear, as clear. Uh, it, it should be in the gospel of Mark so far, but, but Matthew and Luke actually help clarify what is leaven. Now, as many of you know, leaven, you, I put it into pizza mix and it helps my pizza rise, uh, right? You, you might do that in bread. And you know, it's like a crazy bread maker. He does this all the time. I don't know how to make the kind of bread that he does. I'm like, I don't know what you're doing, man. It looks awesome. I can't do that. Uh, Anyway, the leaven helps helps bring bread and and makes it fluff and makes it it be able to uh, fill you and satisfy you and and rise. Matthew's account of of this exact same story gives us a bit detail and tells us that Jesus was actually talking about the, the teaching of the Pharisees, that it's like bad leaven that seeks in and tries to discredit and to ruin the ministry of Jesus. And it encourages other people who eat that bread to also disbelieve Jesus. Those who believe that teaching and listen to that teaching to disbelieve the good news of Jesus. The gospel of Luke identifies this leaven as the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They're a bunch of hypocrites. And Jesus is trying to tell them there's a difference between his teaching and their teaching. He gives good bread, bread from heaven, teaching from heaven. They give bad bread, the teaching from Satan. There's two breads. There's a a good bread that you should eat and there's a bad bread. Don't eat that. And Jesus is trying to demonstrate this to them. But the disciples, they're so fixated on just physical bread. They're like, Jesus must be talking about bread. They don't have eyes yet to see what he's talking about. So naturally we see they began discussing one another, the fact they have no bread. I I don't know if you've you've ever done this. Recently we went to uh, the lake and on the way home, uh, we didn't have a lot of food in our cooler left right? Like we had almost nothing. It was bad planning on my part. And uh, on our way home, it's like our, our kids are like, they're saying over and over again, like, I'm starving. I'm starving. I'm starving. I'm starving. I'm like, you're not starving. Uh, you've eaten today. But there's, a, I'm starving over and over and over again. You ever been in that? 
uh, moment. It's uh, not fun. Uh, but, but you're like, I don't, I don't have anything for you. And this is kind of the same situation here. They're like, hey, I forgot to bring bread. Like, and they keep talking with one another. Where is this bread? Are we going to be able to have enough bread? And, and Jesus, who's uh, aware of this, uh, he jumps into a long list of questions. If you're taking notes, you can, you can look at this. He, he asks nine questions to the disciples, nine of them. He had, he had just provided bread, remember? Like they've forgotten the fact that they were just with a whole bunch of Gentiles and he took seven loaves and fed 4,000 people, right? Jesus could take this one little loaf of bread and turn it into enough bread for them. This, this is not even a problem for Jesus, but they're so fixated on, on this. And so Jesus asks them nine questions in a row, and this is how our text ends for this week. So here are his questions. Jesus says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you have? And they responded, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Seven. And so Jesus says, do you not yet understand? Uh, Again, the answer is apparently not. See, Jesus isn't saying the fact that you don't have bread is the issue. He's saying the teaching, this teaching from Satan is the issue. This is the problem. And what all these questions are meant to do is they are graciously designed to both reprove them, but also to encourage them into faithfulness. Having just left the Pharisees and having this contention, Jesus wants the disciples to be warned, this is not the kind of faith that they are to have. They are not to be like Israel, constantly rebelling against them. But who are they to be like? The Gentiles. Isn't that wild? You, in, in looking at the situation, who do you think should recognize who Jesus is that his teaching is from God, the Gentiles or the religious leader who have memorized all of the Old Testament? The religious people, right? This is a reversal of the whole thing. Mark is saying they didn't get it. They didn't get it. And yet the Gentiles, Jesus has compassion on them. He's looking at his disciples and he's saying, don't be like the Pharisees, be like the Gentiles. Listen to my teaching. I will satisfy all that you need. Don't listen to these guys. Don't listen. Don't eat that bad bread. Eat this good bread. Listen to my teaching. And so these questions, they're they're providentially placed exactly within this passage because Mark, the the writer of this book, remember we've talked about how, how Mark's a brilliant writer, He asks us questions all the way through his gospel, but he doesn't come out and ask them to us. He has the characters in the story ask us these questions. And this is exactly what he has here. Jesus is wanting us to pause at the end of this and ask ourselves, what kind of faith do we have? How are we approaching Jesus? And he does this by having Jesus ask all of these nine questions at this exact moment. And he's wanting to ask us these exact same things. So are we approaching Jesus like the Pharisees? Are we those who in our hearts, we just keep demanding more and more proofs and more and more signs that Jesus really is God and is truly able to save us? Are we never satisfied and always demanding more, believing that if we just had more, then we would actually put our faith in him? 
or are we like the disciples? We've seen the works of Jesus, and, and we might say logically we do trust in him, but, but maybe our hearts are prone to leading us away from Jesus, and we need to be called back to trust in him. Because this is a good moment for them to, as the disciples to, as they're on the rest of this boat ride, to pause and to think through, do I have a hard heart? Do I have ears that can hear? Do I have a mind that can comprehend? Do I remember God's promises and how he's provided in the past? And do I doubt him in the present? Right? All of these things and, and more are, are meant to, to cause us to think deeply about our own relationship with God. The writer of Hebrews, he warns us as Christians to be on guard, lest there be an evil and unbelieving heart develop within our chest that leads us away from God. And that's why we need one another. I love that. That's what that writer of Hebrews says. He says, this is what you're prone to. All of us, all of us as Christians, we are prone to having hearts that lead us astray and to get hardened by sin over time. And that's why we need to constantly remember the gospel. And that's why we need one another. Apart from one another, we are God's gracious gifts given to one another to help preserve and persevere one another. God uses us in one another's lives for that very purpose, to encourage us, to remind us, to call us to faithfulness, to bear one another's burdens, to pray for one another, to weep with one another, to rejoice with one another. But maybe you're also here and all that kind of sounds a little foreign to you. You might be a little bit like the Gentiles in this story. You might be coming and learning about Jesus, wondering if there is compassion of God for you. And so we can see from this text and from Jesus' own words that if you're ever wondering if God does care, if he does have compassion towards you, we have this reminder that he does. So much compassion that Jesus God the Son left the glories and riches of heaven, put on flesh and bone, stepped into time to demonstrate his great compassion for you. And supremely, we see that, that he loves us because he stood condemned on the cross in our place, facing the punishment that we deserve, so that we could, this very day, be offered forgiveness and compassion. And that's what's on the table for all of us, is forgiveness of sin and great compassion. So there we have it. There's compassion for the outsider, the rebuke for the insider, and then the encouragement to the disciples. So let's pray, and then we will respond uh, by singing together of God's kindness. So Father, we thank you for today and the opportunity we have to gather and to be reminded of your word. I pray that uh, you would use your word in our lives, and that we would continue to grow in faithfulness and in love for one another and for you. Um, Pray as well that you just continue to lead us. You would continue to remind us that you have been faithful in the past and you will continue to be faithful. That as we're walking through lots of situations personally and then even in our church, God, that you would remind us that you really do care. You are gracious and compassionate and kind. Pray as well that you would remind us of your faithfulness in the past, that we wouldn't have hard hearts towards you or even towards one another. Pray that if there is anything in our lives that we need to be rebuked on, that you would bring that to mind by your spirit or by one of our brothers and sisters. And I pray for our hearts that you would continue to guard us in Christ Jesus, 
knowing that you will persevere and preserve us. Thank you even for these seasons and times of doubts and fears and anxieties and how you, you even use those in our lives to deepen our trust of you. That we may see things about your character and your nature that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. But we do pray, God. We pray that your kingdom will come. Jesus, we pray that you would come and come quickly. We see a world around us that is littered with just sin, sin in our own lives, sin in others, sin in systems and structures, and we long for the day, long for the day when you will come and you will right every wrong, where there will be no more death, no more separation, no more sadness. So we pray that you would come. We love you and we ask this in Christ's name, amen.